Hello and welcome to episode 95 of Bulak, a podcast that is dedicated to Arabic literature in translation. I'm Ursula Lindsay and I'm uh, recording in Amman, Jordan. And I'm Marsha Links Quayley uh, and I'm recording in Rabat, Morocco. As many of you already know, uh, Marsha is the founding editor of the literary co-op Arab Lit, Arab Lit Quarterly, and Arab Lit Books. She's an editor, a critic, and an occasional translator. And I am a journalist and a book reviewer who's been writing about culture and politics in this part of the world for the last 20 years. And as you also probably know, Bula is a labor of love. It's something we started in 2017, and we've recorded 95 episodes We've read hundreds of books and had dozens of writers and translators on as guests. It's produced and distributed by the folks at the podcast platform SOUT, but it is completely independent with, without support from grants or foundations. And we've always wanted it to be freely available to everyone and not limited to subscribers. But it's also honestly a fair amount of work, and it's hard for us to keep it going without uh, a bit of help from you. Uh, so we wanted to tell you about several ways that you can support us. So first, if you're a listener, you can rate, share, recommend the show, just spreading the word and helping us reach uh, a bigger and more diverse audience. Two, if you're a publisher or a literary organization, you can buy ads on the show or sponsor an episode. Uh, you can contact us at bulak at com to find out how to do that. And third, anyone can make a donation of any size to our 2023 fundraiser. So if you've enjoyed the show, if you've discovered things here, if you found it useful, and if you want to help keep it going, you can make a donation at donorbox.org slash support hyphen You can make a one-time donation or you can sign up for a recurring one, any amount at all. And this helps with production costs, equipment, and all the time we put into this to help us get to our 100th episode and beyond. So now we'd like to talk about love. Right. So today's episode, um, partly inspired, uh, I suppose, by some Valentine's-related conversation we had a couple weeks ago, uh, <laughs> is about depictions of love and all its other attendant emotions, love, lust, desire, romance um, in, uh, in Arabic literature. And um, obviously, that's a very wide net to cast. Um, so we are, we could do like a whole yearly series of episodes on this single theme. But today, we're just going to, I think, we both kind of turn to our libraries and also to our friends and confidants and came up with some examples that we'd like to talk about of the treatment of love in poetry and prose. Yeah. And I think one of the things that, um, that I found when asking uh, poets, translators about their favorite love poems in particular, and then I also asked about favorite love stories and novels, was the sort of wide expanse of, of time that we're talking about from um, pre-Islamic uh, oral poetry to, to, you know, to obviously contemporary poetry being produced right now, um, that that it not just that of course you know love stories people fell in love <laughs> fifteen hundred two thousand years ago, but but also that those the same love songs and love stories love poems remain in circulation, um, 
particularly that some of them that were maybe composed 1500 years ago have um, contemporary musical versions. And, and that was something that, that came up again and again, that many of them, the classical love poems had been put to music either in the 20th century or more recently. Oh, so what would be an example of that? So one of the people that I sent an email to was Munira Al-Ghadir, who's a Saudi uh, translator and poet. And she sent me several of these really old oral Bedouin poems, That one of which uh, she also sent me um, a YouTube a modern musical version from. Although there are just so many of, of these, um, you know, that have uh, musical versions of uh, Antara wa Abla poems and and Qais um, wa Leila. But I would like to read this one that is sort of lesser known, um, uh, Nura al-Hawshain poem uh, by a Bedouin woman. And Murira gives this context. The poet had a dispute, which is, you know, the sort of the written context around the poems, which is always um, interesting. The, the poet had a dispute with her husband, which led to her divorce. One day she passed by his fields and mournfully recalled the bygone days of their intimacy and estrangement and divorce that had come later. So the, as she says, the poem became well known and the opening was incorporated into many other oral poems and songs. O oh, eyes, pour me the freshest, clearest tears, and when the fresh part's over, pour me the dregs. O oh, eyes, gaze at his harvest and guard it. Keep watch upon his water camels, look at his well. If he passes me on the road, I can't speak to him. O oh, God, such affliction and utter calamity. Whoever desires us, we scorn to desire, and whom we desire, feeble fate does not deliver. So one of the things I liked about this and which I think is sort of makes it sort of last over time is is both, you know, this sort of timeless um, who you love doesn't love you back. Right. And, and then also just imagining that she had been married to this guy <laughs> <laughs> and somehow they had a big fight and they got divorced. And then now she passes by his fields and sort of mournfully gazes over his camels and his harvest. At what time would this have been written, more or less? These are harder to pinpoint, but let's say, you know, pre-600 CE. So old. All right. Old poems that have been incorporated and reincorporated and and sort of come come down through time. And this one has been set, was set to music in the... Yes, and we will definitely include the link to the YouTube that Munira sent. Yeah, I'm a 
And then you have uh, you have some other examples too that you wanted to share, right? So I'm going to leap forward in time now to um, sort of the late 700s, early 800s, also CE, to the Abbasid era, and and to also to a woman poet. First, you know, of of all many of the poems, of course, uh, that people sent me are classic poems, love poems, written by men. Um, Yasmin Seal is currently working on a translation of Tawq al-Hamama by Ibn Hazm, which I'm sure will be sort of a, a great um, monument to love, but it's it's not extant yet, unfortunately. Um, this is also a Yasmin Seal translation uh, by Ulaya bint al-Mahdi, and it also has been set to music recently. Um, she, she was very different from a Bedouin poet wandering the fields, Ulaya Ulaya. Uh, Bint al-Mahdi was a, 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 instead a princess um, and also a noted musician and poet. Um, and I will read the poem and then in Yasmin Seal's translation. Uh, to love two people is to have it coming, body nailed to beams, dismemberment. But loving one is like observing religion. I held out until fever broke me. How long can grass brave fire? If I did not have hope that my heart's master's heart might bend to mine, I would be stranded no closer to gate than home. And so one of the things I love about this poem, obviously, is Yasmin's sort of masterful rendering of it in the contemporary English. Uh, and I just love this opening. To love two people is to have it coming, body nailed to beams, dismemberment, but loving one is like observing religion. So this, you know, um, this image of, of being separated, being pulled apart to, and then shifting to sort of the wholeness and the oneness of, of religion. And of course, there are many poems where, um, love, romantic love and, and religion are a love for God are, um, you know, uh, it, so tightly intertwined. You, you can't tell whether the author is talking about a love for a person or a love for God. That's a, a lot of love poetry sort of like works on such a metaphorical level that it, that it, that both a, a, a million other things stand in for romantic love and romantic love stands in for, for many other things. I mean, that, that that's, that's the way a lot of love poems work. Right. Right. Although I guess, yeah, at the, at the core, the poems I, that really speak to me the most are the ones where you can also feel that there is an actual element <laughs> of, um, you know, desire for another human being in there. Um, I held out until fever broke me, um, mm. you know, so I just, you know, have this, this sense of this, um, you know, this princess who maybe, I don't know, for all I know, she, she is just speaking metaphorically, but, um, holding out against the collapse into, into desire. Into fashion. Yeah. And you said this, this poem has, was also set to, music in modern times right this was set to a very recent collection by Fatma al-Qadri 
um, which is a, a, an album that she released I can't, just a few years ago called Medieval Femme. And each of the songs on the album is inspired by classical poetry of Arab women. And, um, and, and, and we can sort of post a link to all of that, but, but of course, a lot of it is love poetry. Another one that I really like is from Consorts of the, of the Caliphs, um, which is a, a collection that was translated by Shaukata Turawa and the Library of Arabic Literature editors. And the one that she, she uses is a poem by Ghadir. Um, and it's, it's much more of a sort of a love revenge there. This is another genre that I really enjoy that you really can't call a love poem, but I spend my night with nights with corpses. You spend your days with dark eyed beauties, curse your new love, disaster strike you drop dead before morning as I am now. May you be too. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the revenge poem is kind of one of my favorite sorts of poem, um, I mean, I think the, it is hardly an original remark. I mean, like, you know, it's not the uh, happy and harmonious and fulfilled stage of love that inspires most art or writing or singing about it. So definitely it's more the longing or regret or resentment stages of love, I think, that are immortalized. Yeah, if I think of, you know, the great uh, love poems, Ablo Antara, um, uh, Majnun Leila, yeah, they're they're all at a stage of, yeah, you don't write about, hey, I'm going to write a, although a a poet that we're going to talk about later does brilliantly do that. But generally that it's not a, love poetry is not about fulfilled love. Right. I mean, that is the, uh, there's two things I think that are very, very hard to do, which is like write well about sex and write non-boringly about happy love. Right. Um, those are maybe sort of ultimate challenges, but, uh, and so, I mean, it's super interesting to me that there is this poetic heritage from so long ago that is then reworked in, modern both as an inspiration for modern poetry and then and in modern song in the region um i don't read a lot of poetry so i'm not very knowledgeable about uh about this heritage the the focus of my reading has always been more the modern arabic novel and when we started talking about this i started looking through my bookshelves thinking oh like what are the the love stories or the romantic stories that have, you know, most struck me in my reading of the, you know, last 20 years. And I have to say a lot of my favorite books do not contain, um, their focus is not love. Uh, Mm. I, I, I started to develop, I have a sort of embryonic theory at this point that the, modern Arabic novel was so uh, preoccupied with political questions that love uh, was, you know, came came a distant second, third, or fourth to its main focus um, as as opposed to, you know, the the European novels that I grew up reading, uh, you know, uh, 
Austin and, and, and Elliot and, and even later Henry James and, you know, all of these uh, writers for which uh, the, the decision who to marry is sort of the great suspenseful, deciding, dramatic, you know, Thomas Hardy, like a million, you know, decision of, of the book and of the individual. And uh, that as the romantic choice and, and marriage is, I feel like it's not, is treated really in a different way uh, in the modern Arabic novel. And it, mm. and it was a kind of interesting variety. Even where it is central, it, it is not treated in that same, uh, I guess, it, it it just always carries more context with it and more community with it and and more ties to other things rather than it being about two individuals who sometimes in in European and literature to me seem sort of you know dissociated from from the rest of things of course there's questions of money such as in Jane Austen and class and and other things that 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 do make it a also a political novel but but in in many love stories, they do feel um, you know in the individualization you really separate them from from the the sort of larger communal landscape. Class is definitely present, but I mean I think the big the big one of the big differences is that you know uh, national liberation and and you know the 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 politics, the colonialism thrust upon the Arab countries, the sort of nationalist politics and preoccupations that dominate the 20th century are not there in the, in the, in the earlier European novel. Like there just isn't that like burning question of like national emancipation. Uh, I mean, there is on the individual level questions of class because that's often one of the great dilemmas, right? Is like juggling love and class, like you know whether a match is uh, uh, can be made or will be accepted, or you know the the sort of tension between what a person you know wants romantically or sexually and what they what is in their best class social interests. Um, but anyway, you were going to talk about uh, an Egyptian novel, right? That that deals with society. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite uh, romance novel that I think of as a romance novel. There, there are other novels where romance is an element. For instance, *Beer in the Snooker Club*. Many novels have a kind of a leitmotif of of relationships running through them, but. Uh, I think of Dua al Karawan by Taha Hussein, which is a 1934 <laughs> honor killing slash love story uh, as a romance novel. How's that translated, the title into English? Is it the night? When they translate the, for the, the when they translated from, for the film, they translated as The Nightingale's Prayer. Okay. Uh, and there is not, uh, to my knowledge, a translation of the novel, although there really should be. Um, and because the sort of overwhelming feeling that it gives me is about, um, this kind of desire for, for someone else and a falling into love against one's, against one's will. Um, uh, although it is set in a, in a very political context, which is the, the protagonist's sister has been killed by her uncles, um, 
if for, you know, for in, in uh, you know, what the terrible term honor killing. And, and she goes to sort of get revenge on the young man who she believes, you know, seduced her sister and she, you know, fails to kill him and then falls in love with him. <laughs> it doesn't really seem like the pre- premise of a very romantic story. Um, well, it's a very gothic romantic story. I yes. remember, the, I, I don't, I don't know if I've ever read the book, but I've watched the black and white, uh, I think like super well-known and at the time yes. successful movie yes. with Fatin Hamama. And it's suspenseful too. And there's an element of danger um, and, and this, this element of love, uh, you know, it's like Hitchcockian kind of. Right. Right. And as I remember it, the, um, the, the main, the narrator in the, in the main character in the book was very charming and she was sort of very self-improving in this early 20th century way of wanting to read and, and discuss things and, and grapple with the world. Um, and yes, so it was very suspenseful. There was, you know, this sort of missed opportunity to kill the guy that you then fall in love with. And and I mean, of course, many romance novels and romantic stories are based on improbable romances. And this is certainly one of them. Yeah, I mean, so it sounds, um, I think there was a, a, a fashion for sort of quite melodramatic stories uh mid-century in 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 Egypt I mean I haven't read it but uh, the the writer Ihsan Abdel Quddus had a book that yes. was reissued yeah. recently um and uh and it also sounds like the premise of that is this is a story that sort of mixes revenge and obsession and love and it's told from the point of view of a woman these are both male writers writing from the point of view of women right Yes. And in both cases, I found them to be convincing. I think that, you know, because they really, presumably in both cases, they put themselves into these characters. Um, you know, Jonathan Smolin has a, a theory that, 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 that's, that novel by Asen Abdul Qudus is actually a political novel about, um, you know, Nasser, um, the more common reading of it is as a romance, but certainly a romance can have multiple layers as well. But what's it called? Sorry, I forgot the title. I cannot sleep or something. Yes. I mean, I, I thought that they would translate it as sleepless, but it's translated as I do not sleep. Ah, okay. Yes. And I mean, clearly that, I mean, Taha Hussein was, you know, what, the, sort of one of the great towering figures of early 20th century Egyptian culture. And, uh, and a reformer and uh, a, a, a liberal and a believer in women's education and um, you know, sort of in, in pro- yes, and his wife was also a writer, Suzanne. And so clearly, this story is also. I mean, he has something to say about honor killings themselves, presumably. Like it's also an opportunity to weave a major social issue. I mean, it's a it's a clever, suspenseful plot point, but then also maybe something. It, that sort of fits into his preoccupations as a social reformer. Mm, yeah, definitely. Yeah, but I think the sort of the overwhelming feeling of the book. It, so, so many of the books that I love that were written in Arabic, um, love is sort of a, a more minor story. 
Whereas this one is really does put love in front and center. Does it have a happy ending? Um, well, people will have to read it themselves, I think. The the film and the, the film and the book have different endings, I'd say. Okay. Um and then in uh, Sleepless or I Do Not Sleep, it is all it also does foreground love and and <laughs> but love and bad choices in in that case. Okay. Well, I spent the morning uh rereading uh Nagib Mahfouz's trilogy or the portions of it that deal with a love story that I remembered from it. Um, so uh, the the character in the trilogy that is sort of Maf- considered to be Mahfouz's own stand-in is uh, in this Kyrene family, is the youngest son uh, who becomes uh, sort of educated and a kind of uh, petit bourgeois intellectual. Um, and I remember that there's this kind of very wistful uh, love story that he has um, where he basically becomes um, enamored with a girl from a, from a higher social class. So if one of his school friends has a sister and uh, there's this, you know, summer in which he is visiting their house and staying in their garden all the time. And Aida, who is, you know, European educated and speaks French and, you know, hangs out with young men her age. And also, as it turns out later, you know, drinks beer and eats ham. These are all things that are sort of shocking <laughs> to the, to the character, to to Kamal, who comes from a, you know, a pretty well off and upwardly mobile, but more traditional family, uh, like son of a, of a merchant, basically, uh, he, you know, he is completely uh, uh, entranced by her, and uh, in keeping with his with the character that Mafuz gives to him, though he's, I mean, it's it, sort of he is also like pathetically, really like delusionally romantic about it. Uh, I mean, let's say like not in touch with reality, which is mm-hmm. which is how this character who sort of tends to over intellectualize everything and be very bad at making any dis- taking any decisive action. Uh, so I think I mean, the, the depiction of of romantic, like almost every other relationship in the book, there's a lot of relationships in which people's desire for each other is rendered quite uh, in quite detailed and and interesting ways, uh, I think this is the one of the main examples of like romantic love, you know, as opposed to just like men. For the most part, men's pursuit of particular women uh, in in much more earthy ways uh, in in most of the other relationships. Uh, and but, but you know, I mean, I think. Kamal is kind of uh, held up for for ridicule, including by the woman herself, who does not take him particularly seriously. Um, and I mean, both for class reasons, because as it turns out, she's she's going to marry someone of her own class, uh, and because of his temperament. Um, and I thought I'd read just a small like exchange between them. So this is this is right after he's basically declared his love to her on the streets, like, but knowing you know that he already has no chance, um, 
And she's basically turned around and said, yes, but, you know, that's very kind and all your sweet guy, but what do you want? Um, still anxious, he said, I want, I want you to give me permission to love you. She could not hold back her laughter. She inquired, is this really what you want? But what will you do if I refuse? Sighing, he replied, in that case, I'll love you anyway. In a half-joking manner that upset him, she asked, What's the point of the permission, then? How absurd it was when words betrayed a person and came out wrong. What he feared most was falling back to earth as suddenly as he had risen from it. He heard her say, You perplex me. It seems to me that you even perplex yourself. He answered uneasily, Me? Perplexed? Perhaps, but... I love you. What follows from this? I imagine occasionally that I aspire to things beyond the earth's capacities, but when I reflect a little, I'm unable to ascertain what my goal is. You tell me what this means. I want to talk. To, I want you to talk while I listen. Can you rescue me from my dilemma? She said with a smile, I don't have anything to offer in this regard. You ought to be the speaker. I'll do the listening. Aren't you a philosopher? His face turning red, he commented dejectedly, You're making fun of me. She was quick to answer, No, but I wasn't anticipating a conversation like this when I left my house. You caught me by surprise, telling me things I wasn't expecting to hear. In any case, I'm thankful and grateful. No one would be able to forget your tender and refined affection. It would be out of the question to make fun of them. Which is exactly, I think, what she's doing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, yeah, and, and, and then what I'd forgotten is that he goes to her wedding and then uh, even like fantasizes about spying on her in her bedroom on her wedding night because just so he can finally figure out why it is that he's so in love with her and what it would be like to be with her. Um, and then there's this other sort of kind of resonant melancholy coda to it, which is that many years later he runs into her younger sister who looks a lot like her on the tram and that and this rich. Uh, family has sort of fallen from their social status and all of a sudden the younger sister is accessible to him like he could propose marriage and once again he can't decide what to do and is sort of paralyzed and does nothing and 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 doesn't pursue this sort of shadow of the woman that he loved 20 years before right um although this is this to me sounds seems now as you say it feels so metaphorical for sort of <laughs> the political state of the world and sort of for his total inability and inaction to to do the things to to enact the to to have that will to enact things the world that he as he would like to see it yeah i mean kemal is i i mean his indecisiveness is sort of a re very emphasized trait and it may be that it has uh you know that it signifies something also allegorically in the book. Um, I mean, Mahfouz's characters often work on, on two levels at once. You know, they're fairly believable personalities. And 
what what stays with me are the actual set pieces, like the scenes, like him fall, sit, staying on the tram, w- looking at this girl's neck day after day, or walking past her house, or the summer when he visits every every evening and sits in the garden. Which rereading it reminded me suddenly of uh, the Garden of the Finci Contini's, which is a book that I absolutely adore, uh, Italian novel which has this similar scene of an upper class girl in a be- with this beautiful house with this garden that becomes a kind of garden of Eden, you know, from which eventually, of course, the lower class would-be lover is expelled. And I think it's a total coincidence, uh, but, but there is this, you know, uh, this overlaying of the desire for her and the glamour of her and the, and the exoticism of her different uh, class. Um, but you know, and but then and then after that, Mafuz. I mean, it's hard to find in any of his subsequent books any particular interest in. I mean, love is something that yes, sort of happens. It's one of these love and marriage and and desire are there in the mix in the panorama of sort of social relations and things, but they are hardly his focus or his preoccupation. Uh, he's always more interested, right, in the in the in the in the big you know, national, social, political allegory, uh, the, rather than in the, that kind of a, of a personal or intimate relation. Yeah. And I think, you know, in in a sense, this, this is something that, you know, gets a novel taken seriously, not that there aren't plenty of romance novels and erotic novels written in Arabic, but that the literary novel is a novel of of sort of big issues, whereas poetry can be a, a poetry that sort of high literary poetry can be poetry of very small things, and particularly, of course, of love, of love and of passion. Yeah, I do think there's this divide between between poetry and prose on this. Um, because if you think about, and of course, I know Egyptian writers better than than most, and I would be very interested when people listen to the episode if they have uh, examples. Because we're, re- I'm really just testing out. We're testing out these theories as we speak, <laughs> you know. So it'd be great to actually hear um, things to to support or not uh, this this idea. But you know, uh, I mean, it seems like on the part of Male writers, you know, there's, there's, I mean, there's a fair amount of depictions of women that are, that are really quite, you know, a bit flat and a bit sexist and, and, and a bit limited, which may reflect just, you know, their, their, their social reality, uh, how much, you know, actual engagement, uh, there was between men and women and how much opportunity to see things from, from, from women's point of view. Um, That's very generous of you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, no, I know. I know. I mean, there's, there's, or just a disinterest or just, you know, there's, and and women just being sort of, again, like very described very much in a superficial way, in a physical way for the most part, you know, as, as objects of, of desire. Um, But then on the part of women, I think uh, there's a, also often not it's not unfrequent to have a sort of the same kind of like politicization of relationships or like you know uh equating certain 
uh, for example, the desire for personal emancipation with the desire for political uh, emancipation and like, uh, and this focus basically on free, like on, like, like on, in the part of women's writing, a lot of writing about romance is, is, is a reaction to these limitations, right. And a desire to like explore whether it's erotic freedom or romantic freedom. Like basically it's a lot about like unshackling yourself in one way or another, even more than it's about the particular relationships. Right. And sometimes, yeah, it's about about finding a new way. Uh, yeah. About, it, it's sort of a, yeah, right. L- liberation, maybe even more than a romance novel. It, for instance, um, Latifa Zayet's most famous work, which is The Open Door, which was translated by Marilyn Booth, which is a, a kind of a series of, of, of trying out relationship, trying out romance, um, and, and seeing how these different kinds of relationships, you know, bad ones to start with, <laughs> you know, change her life and, and how they sort of fit in with sort of a wider political consciousness. So The Open Door was published in 1960, and it was the translation just came out quite quite recently. No, um, I think that was a retranslation. I mean, not a retranslation. Oh, okay. A re- reissuing. A reissue? Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, a reissuing of a, a translation that originally came out in the 90s. Okay. All right. Well, that makes sense. I, I think that I, it was republished in 2017, which is why I thought it was something new. But I only read it recently, and I came to it sort of thinking up. Uh, I think thinking I wouldn't particularly like it, thinking it was going to be uh, too dated and too ideological. Um, I had also seen there is an excellent, again, an excellent movie based on it. Um, uh, and uh, I, but I thought like it was going to be too schematic, you know, like that that this woman's personal liberation and her romantic fulfillment and the anti-colonialist struggle were all sort of like mapped onto each other we mapped on each other very neatly in this book. And, you know, that's that I I find that a bit like the idea seemed a bit didactic, you know, like a bit too schematic. I was pleasantly, like actually pleasantly surprised. Like there is really like, I find a great narrative strength to a lot of the scenes in this book, like a real ability to like convey um, emotional states uh, that that is that is still striking, I find, and um, and the yeah, like you said, she goes. So the main character Layla is a young girl from a like very constricting bourgeois family, um, and uh, and she goes through basically several different uh, relationships before finally sort of uh, freeing herself both as a woman and as a person and. Uh, you know, joining the the fighting near the Suez Canal zone uh, and uh, against the British, and at the same time, like finally, you know, opening the door of the title to like who she really is and picking the man she wants to be with and defying her family and all of these things. Uh, but um, but the most striking character, like the most striking characters maybe in the book for me are the villains are the are the descriptions of the 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 relationship she's in before she finally finds love uh Mm. one of which is absolutely chilling do you know yeah yes the one to the professor yes 
so I sh- shall I I have a couple things earmarked from this. I mean, it is such an example of like uh, bad abusive love. Um, right. Please do. Okay, so let me see. Um, so basically, uh, Layla's at university, and this professor, who's very you know cold and domineering and critical, starts to take. Um, a, a sort of mysterious interest in her, which basically takes overwhelmingly the form of of being disapproving of her and contradicting her and criticizing what she says in class and so on. <clears throat> uh, so this says, so a silent struggle began, imbuing Lila with its outlines, a struggle she felt compromised her very existence and sucked the blood from her veins. If she did not comprehend at first what Dr. Ramsey wanted from her, it was not long before she understood perfectly. His attitude to life diverged from hers in sharply defined ways. The source of that was not difficult to locate. His whole nature differed from hers. So, she realized, he wanted to humiliate her, precisely her, and to bend her to his will. He must hear her parrot his opinions. The only view he could brook was his own. Indeed, no response one might offer could please him. To be more accurate, he could not regard any answer with pleasure, for as far as he was concerned, pleasure was a vulgar emotion, wholly inappropriate to the intellectual, who must at all times impose on his feelings an ironclad structure of thought. No, He could not consent to any answer unless it confirmed his own personal opinion, unless his merchandise was returned to him in full. This was not a phase of her life in which Layla felt any particular need to assert her will. She resigned herself to a great deal and tended to yield without argument. But in this case, something led her to put up with the disparagement, the commentaries, and the jokes without crumbling. It almost seemed as if she did not dare to capitulate, for if she had, a danger she could ill-define awaited her. Just say what he wants to hear and be done with it, Adila would say. He wants me to be a parrot. Parrot, parrot, isn't that better than having him always picking on you? What's the big deal about making him happy, hmm? Layla had no convincing answer to offer. If she were to tell Adila that something within her warned her not to yield, deterring her from buckling under, Adila would laugh at her. If she insinuated that some sort of danger threatened her from the direction of Dr. Ramsey, a danger she could not pinpoint at present, Adila would think her insane. Layla did not surrender. Dr. Ramsey went on drinking her blood, his words like a hammer in a worker's fist demolishing whatever resisted, day after day. His presence filled her with the fear that paralyzed her senses, and yet at the same time attracted her. She could not take her eyes from him. And then it goes on. I mean, there's like a scene after right. scene where where the way in which he, you know, uh, belittles her, basically bullies her into accepting his marriage proposal and makes it clear that I mean, you're just, you're just sitting there like, no, no, don't, (laughs) don't accept the engagement. No, don't, you know, it's, it's, it's a real uh, kind of nightmare that you can see coming, but it's rendered very well. Yeah, I feel, so I feel the same way um, 
about Buthayna al much more recent novel, All That I Want to Forget, which is a Kuwaiti novel, which also begins in these kind of, begins in a kind of a nightmarish relationship. And then it's like, uh, um, you know, she's got a very abusive relationship with her brother, or rather her brother is very abusive to her and he forces her into, into a marriage. And then a very, um, you know, something that you could tolerate which I think is the most difficult kind of thing to get out of. Like, here you are as a woman, you could tolerate this this situation. You could just live the rest of your life in this situation. And sort of, so the the romance novel in that case, and maybe in Latif al-Zayed's case as well, is part of, you know, you have to love yourself too. I was thinking, yeah, that was what I was thinking in my head. If it's not too cheesy to say, that's very much. <laughs> they, they have to love. They have to love themselves before they can love someone else, and and that's and that's what happens in this in this book, in which, in which there is a very sympathetic, very attractive male character who wants her to be happy, wants her to be fulfilled, like admires her, doesn't want to like you know, dominate her. Um, it's, I mean, this, uh, yeah, I found the book, you know, these, I mean, of course, most, uh, most love stories are going to be about that suspense as to whether the person can find happiness and that risk, right, of, of, of being in a, of making the wrong choice. Mm, right. Uh, in that sense, I mean, you know, because, because the, the stakes are, for marriage are so high in like the, the the European novel at a time when like marriage was something you couldn't get out of. And that continues to be the case, I think, for the Arab novel from the point of view of women through like the end of the 20th century, because marriage remains something that is like so difficult to 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 freely end or exit. Uh, So so the stakes are high in that respect in like a similar way. Right. It's all, but also I think because it's, um, it's, it's not about an individual entering into a marriage. A marriage is also about sort of families joining together, communities joining together. It's, it's a relationship. If you, you know, in, in a, in a way where, yeah, you, are you marrying the, the right guy who brings the right amount of money and the right status to your family in this kind of, you know, Jane Austen-y way? It's, it's a, it's it's a relationship that has much wider impact. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the other character is absolutely chilling in the open door is the narrator's father, who beats her right. in an early scene, uh, in a right. way that if, is clearly like really shocking and scary to her, and like really intimidates her. Yeah, and and all that I want to get forget the narrator's brother. I believe locks her in a basement for a long time and in this very kind of kidnappery freaky way. Um, so yeah, there is this kind of heavy hand of, of family deciding. And then it's sort of, sort of both buildings, Roman and romance, but romance in the sense of, yeah, she has to find herself. She has to find her own feet first before she can find romance um, I, I also just wanted to mention in that kind of earlier uh, period, like Tahusin, a writer I recently spent a lot of time with was Samira Azem, the Palestinian short story writer. And she does have uh, these sort of short stories that are really just about 
a young girl falling in love. <laughs> like she has this story, the little, the little things that are, you know, at first the girls, you know, she starts out um, really sort of stiff and strict with herself. And, um, you know, she's got a very sort of, sort of kind of, you know, conservative mentality. It's not clear if it's the reason is religious or what, but she's, you know, doesn't think it's appropriate for boys and girls to chitter chatter like this until she, you know, there's this boy that she, she meets, she has encounters with. It's very much just about, um, her, uh, her falling, you know, falling away from this very strict belief system that she has and falling for this boy. And it's, you know, it's short, sweet, beautiful. So it's not that, that there are no (laughs) simply romantic stories. Oh no, there's, there's plenty. Um, there, I mean, that really there's 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 more than we can possibly talk about. I just think it's interesting all the different like flavors. Um mm, yes, right. Of of the feeling. And I mean, I don't I don't know if we can do this episode without talking about what I think is sort of one of the like uber romantic poems and stories of of Arab letters, which is uh Mahmoud Darwish's poem Rita and the Rifle. Mm, yes. So that, and this is um, sort of also sort of falls in the category of favorite real life romances of of authors, which one doesn't know enough about, actually, because for the most part, uh, I think uh, you don't know too much about the personal lives of a lot of writers. Um, mm. about their like youthful love affairs, about their like personal relations, you know, like the great sweeping delving biography of a lot of like uh, Western writers, which unearths, you know, all sorts of uglinesses as well as, you know, exciting or moving stories is, is rarely done for, for writers in, um, in the region. I mean, partly because of a sort of archives not existing and partly because of a different attitude to like revealing personal information and this idea that people's um like these intimate relations are things um you know kind of sources of almost embarrassment uh right although i think you did have this sort of um maybe film stars writing their biography that of the sort that roth cormat talks about in midnight in cairo that were a little bit more spicy <laughs> right but th- those were women writing in like the 30s right exactly, exactly being yeah. very daring but then i think it's actually gotten less daring so just to sorry add one last thing latifa zayed who wrote the open door this novel we're talking about had uh, a famous uh fa- sort of marriage herself to a conservative man during which she stopped writing for well over a decade. Right. Um, and and this is, you know, I think uh, a sort of one of these episodes that is surrounded in lore. It's, it, and then she came out of that kind of silence to write The Open Door. And one is left to speculate whether this horrible, domineering intellectual was perhaps based in part on on her the husband from which she separated and who I think was, in fact, a dean at a university, if I'm not completely Mm. uh mistaken so you know but she even in her personal memoirs does not go in too much depth into like describing her her 
her personal life, like uh, describing her romantic life, like o- opening up about these things. And I, I think it remains exceedingly rare for like a lot of, again, serious public intellectuals and writers and so on to like reveal or even allow biographers later on to to reveal sort of like, you know, these kinds of personal details. Right. I mean, so Emin Roussel certainly does about motherhood, but I don't remember, for instance, her writing about her husband. But also this is, that's a later generation. I think right, that right. the contemporary writers are much more open about these things. Um, anyway, I'm just saying that in the case of this poem by the Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish, one of the many things that makes it compelling is that we actually do know a little bit about it being based on a true life love story. Like he has never denied that. And in fact, I think at some point much later in his life, when he was finally able to return to the West Bank, this um, this woman that he wrote this poem about, who was uh, uh, an Israeli, a lover of his when he was very young in his early 20s was finally identified or came forward or they may have even met like you know decades later but he was never coy about saying more or less i mean he didn't identify but he was never coy about saying that this was based on a real person and that he had had this relationship so actually i'm not sure that i found the best translation of this online i found like you know it's been translated many times and then uh it was it was famously set to music and turned into a song by Marcel Khalifa, which is the first, I think, version of it that I ever encountered. Um, and there's, you know, bilingual versions. Um, I'm not, but that, that don't, I, I have one in front of me that doesn't actually credit who the translator is. It may be that it's like so well known and so common that there's just so many translations out there. Um, I'll read a little bit from, from this one and then I'll, we'll put several, uh, versions in the show notes. Um, so it goes, uh, between Rita and my eyes is a rifle. Whoever knows Rita becomes devoted and prays to a God in those honey colored eyes. I kissed Rita when she was young and I remember how she held me tight and the sweetest of tresses covered my arm. And I remember Rita like a sparrow remembers a tree-filled land. Ah, Rita. I'll stop there. And I think really there's like, I mean, this is nice. I'll link to this one because you can actually read the Arabic across from it. Um, But I just don't dare read it myself. And I think the song is also very lovely. Thank you. 
like to know more about this famous Rita, but what I think is is fairly well known is, you know, um, Darwish was uh, was living uh, in Haifa in his early 20s, and he was a member of the communist uh, Jewish party, and I believe she may have, that is probably how they met, and she may have been a comrade in the party. Um, and obviously the poem is partly about this rifle and the political situation and the fact that she would have maybe had to serve in the Israeli army coming between them. Um, but he also continues to reference her in this poem and others and in other works for like many, many years. Um, and it gives, I think, it gives a nuance and a depth and a sort of human experience to his ongoing criticism of Israel as a state and of Zionism. Um, because he, because I mean, one of the unique things about Darwish was that he did know Israel from the inside um, because he had, you know, grown up uh, and, and spoke Hebrew and, and, you know, had spent time with Israelis. And so it also allowed him, I think, to critique it in a way um that was free exactly of the sort of like, you know, hateful stereotyping and essentializing um, that that was directed at Palestinians so often. So, and I think that that her there was a film that came out um, maybe about ten years ago now, called "Write Down I'm an Arab," in which she's identified as a, a dancer named Tamar bin Emi, and and this film you know, follows his life and his love affair with the, the sort of so-called Rita and and has letters and pictures and, and other things in them as well. Yeah, I think, you know, at a time when it was like very, uh, you know, there was such a rigid, you know, uh, anti-normalization position on the part of like all Arab writers and intellectuals for Darwish to, you know, incorporate this like complicated personal experience into his poetry and be open about it, you know? Um, I mean, maybe it would have been different if he'd been a female poet. I bet you he got away with it, uh, partly because he was a man. But uh, I think it was, again, it just speaks to also his like freedom as a writer and his confidence. Absolutely, of of continuously shifting, of continuously moving away from from the kind of work that his readers were expecting of him. There was like the persona that um, it's funny that this film is called "Write Down I'm an Arab," since that was like a poem that became kind of iconic about him. But he was always like, "There's the audience that there that there's what they want, but here I'm I'm moving away. They're going to have to come with me." I'm, I'm constantly mm. reinventing what is poetry because that's what poetry is, is reinventing. 
and yeah, his sort of fearlessness um, seems to have been a part of that as well. Yeah. Well, and speaking of poetry that reinvents, we you, we wanted to incorporate one more very new poem, right? Yes. So I want to talk about my favorite contemporary love poet, which is Zina Heschenbeck. And there are two things that make her my favorite contemporary love poet. And one is her poems to Marwan, her husband, who has been her husband. I mean, they started dating, I think, when she was 12. Um, and, and they've been together for a long time now. Uh, and, and so she writes odes to her husband, love poems to her husband, and to their relationship uh, that has, you know, changed, of course, many times over all, all these years. And, uh, and yet, you know, remains fresh, uh, remains uh, what, you know, what is this relationship? What is this thing that, that continually, continuously renews itself? And then the other reason is because she, she also ties in so many different types of loves. And she has this essay recent that she published on Valentine's Day uh, in New Lines, and we'll certainly link to it on the Ghazal as the, as the essential love poem. And why is the Ghazal the essential love poem? Well, she explains about the Ghazal. So each um, couplet in, in the Ghazal can be totally separate from, from the rest of the poem. Um, as she says, one could make you laugh, another makes you cry, all in the span of one poem, as long as each ends with the established refrain, which is preceded by the rhyme. Um, and the unconnected couplets, she says, di disrupt thematic or narrative unity. Um, but this means the gazelle has an ability to contain a multitude of ideas, images, and tones without bothering to logically link them. It's contrapuntal air, as Shahid Ali calls it, makes it for me, she says, the best kind of love poem. For if we are committed to love, we will see it everywhere, in spheres seemingly unrelated, in ourselves, in our romantic partners, in our friends, in how we choose to believe or not believe in our political stances. Departure and return, variation and repetition, these movements that the Ghazal makes with immense longing have come to qualify all my loves. I leave Lebanon and return to it. My daughters push me away and summon me back as I have done with my mother. I say goodbye to friends and meet them again in different cities. So this sort of, um, not love as metaphor, but love as, uh, as taking all these kinds of love and compressing them together until, you know, until they kind of burst. Uh, the love for for friends, which can be as I think romantic and um, and kind of passionate as as a love for for any kind of partner, the love for for a, a country, the love for 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 everything. So I think uh, I found this very compelling, and 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 it is her her love poems for friends. I think that really. I think, make it a different kind of love poetry to me. Although what I'm going to read is, ode, <laughs> is a kind of an older poem called Ode to My Husband, Who Brings the Music. 
And I just would say one interesting thing is that, that she told me recently is that Marwan hasn't read her most recent collection. And it's filled with these love poems for him, which he claims that apparently that he just, you know, he's already read it all. He's already heard it all. He doesn't need to read the collection. <laughs> Ode to my husband who brings the music. There are more windows in the new house. So much light, the living room feels weightless. On weekends, I find you staring out into the garden from the sofa. You always wake before me, go downstairs, and start playing a song on your phone. Sometimes it's new, more often it's not, and always it works, the memory. When we carved the olive tree near our school, we could barely see the letters, but after the rain, they blazed orange. Does bark heal, our names buried inside it? A name is a wound, is a song, so what you're really doing is calling me. From what sleep? You warned I eat my days too fast, or perhaps it was too slow. You once asked, what happened? A balding head, a bank account? Somewhere, a boy with a black fringe kicks a football and eats figs straight from the tree. I repeat the story of my fear of fig trees, how my parents said the wind from the branches could blind me. No such thing, you shrug. Half our hometowns thought our marriage was a sin, a mistake at least. There were phone calls, there was hanging up, years of silence. And though we weren't a revolution, we were at least a questioning. Last week, you almost dialed my old phone number, and I wondered whether it would ring in my childhood house and whether I'd rush to answer. Only you know and remember the house I drew over and over again in all my school books, House with roof tiles, with chimney, with lake and swan. Simple geometric house I never colored in. But look how resilient the future is. How I underestimated the importance of big windows, of the calm sea of you. I don't know at what age we learned to be afraid of happiness. Our first slow dance was in a family club called Union in a town too small. We had no flow, still have none. Unless you consider this, me in bed, not ready for the morning yet, and you downstairs, bringing the music. <laughs>